Cut the crap. How many times a day do you want to say that to politicians, the elite, the loony liberals, the fake news media, and the gender-confused, emotional socialist snowflake crowd? Cut the crap is your secret weapon for fighting for our freedoms and our great republic. It all begins with a massive mental enema, freeing you from the toxic news and politically correct views, which constipate your consciousness with stinking thinking. Your host, Joe Von Hutton Pulitzer. He's known for calling out politicians and telling them to cut the crap. You've seen him on virtually every television network and listened to him on Coast to Coast Radio. And now he's here to help you learn to fight for America. Culture, race, and American politics, they all have one thing in common. They all need to cut the crap. Now, here's your host, Jovan Hutton Pulitzer. Hey there, folks. This is part two. You've been waiting for it. We had uh, Michael gone on, and I'm telling you, we could have gone for hours. You know it. I know it. There is so much that my program, I, I'm telling you, I could, I could do a program a day with Michael. He's such a wealth of information rock star. And tonight we're going to continue our excavation of Michael's magnificent mind the first part we talked about our global food supply by the way folks do me a favor will you share this program for me just share it rumble it this is a one finger war this one has to do with will we be able to feed ourselves in the future share this right now if you would please i would also like to remind you you can follow michael's work michaelyon.locals.com Busy fellow, very interesting war correspondent. has been to 90 countries around the globe. But where we left off last time, I don't have a program long enough. We're continuing the second half now. And this second half, we're going to talk a little bit more about our global food supply. We're going to talk about food security, right? Food security. This one is near and dear to my heart, and Michael's been through it in other countries, and he's going to share with us things that he has learned around the world or seen around the world. Michael, welcome back. Tell everybody where you've been. You've kind of been out in the middle of the thick of it these last couple of weeks, right? I just got back from the border with Mexico. We're being invaded, as you know. Uh, I was not, I was actually down there mostly for meetings with Border Patrol, National Guard, that sort of thing. All off record stuff. No, I don't even bother going any official channels anymore. Um, and so, and also down on the border a little bit at Roma, there was a firefight the night before we got there. Really? Uh, but that's, yeah, that's normal um, over on the Mexican side from Roma. Um, they usually keep it on the Mexican side, but they can have some very vibrant firefights. They can go for like an hour and, you should hear and see some of the videos that people have caught down there. I've been I've been down there quite a few times. I have not seen a firefight in Roma. We did hear seven or eight gunshots uh, near Mission uh, about th- uh, three nights ago, right. and um, but that was it. It wasn't like a firefight. It was just you know it sounded like pistol fire probably. But anyway, um, 
but they'll have these huge firefights on the Mexican side, and some of the bullets will splash over to our side. One guy got hit in the stomach one time with a with a with a fifty cal. It got hit him in the stomach. An American, yeah, it went through his wall and hit him in the stomach. He was watching television, and um, he's okay actually because this house slowed down. You know, fifty cal blow you in half, but it's lucky apparently the, the range in in the house wall in his house it hit him wounded him a little bit but he was okay just like wow. you know, what's going on here it's probably pretty hot and he was watching television got hit in the stomach so i mean the bullets do splash over to our side uh there's all kinds of you know people like jason jones is down there like ben burkwam i mean they're really out there dogging it all the time i'm That's about good. to head i had to come up to take care of some admin things because as you know i've been down range for five months straight right. <laughs> and um so little things like getting a new driver's license that's expired, you know, <laughs> pay to day stuff. Still, yeah. And so now I'm going to go back to El Paso soon. And uh, because El Paso is being absolutely invaded at this point. Let me tell you something. I just got this note that I just sent you. Did you see the one from the Cameroonian guy? Uh, I haven't read it yet. Go ahead. <clears throat> I met this guy down in the Darien Gap. You know, the Darien Gap is that. It's called the Darien Gap because there's a highway that goes from Alaska all the way to Tierra del Fuego down in South America. And there's right. a gap where it stops. You could drive a motorcycle or a car all the way from Alaska to Tierra del Fuego, except for this one gap, which right. is about 60 miles. And, and it's between Panama and Colombia. It's some of the most dangerous jungle in the world. And there's huge amounts of migrants that come through there from Africa and from Asia and from South America. So I've spent months down there in the last, uh, year, maybe a year and a half or so, two years. I've been down there with the uh, Indians, the Embra Indians and Kuna Indians. There's three main types of Indians there. There's Embra, Kuna, and Wunan. I mostly spend time with Embra and uh, and Kuna, and some a little bit with Wunan. But bottom line is the um, the migrants come through their area, and the Indians just kill them in large numbers. And you can see this online, actually, if you look online and see, you know, like, uh, well, just look up Darien Gap. And you'll see articles about what I'm talking about. And it's those Indians that I actually go out with. But it's not just the Indians that kill them. It's the, it's the flash floods. There's a Montaña de la Muerta, the mountain of death that so many fall off of. Right. It's unbelievable. Everybody you meet will tell you stories about Montaña de la Muerta. And, you know, because you cross the Dar you cross in the Darien Gap, you cross the Continental Divide. Just right. like El Paso. It's the same Continental Divide, right? It's El Paso because it's the past in the Continental Divide, right? And so... Um, but down so they're crossing that same divide the same exact one but further south down in panama and anyway so i met this cameroonian guy and he sent me this note and um he's up in america now i met him in i met him in uh in darien gap he he'd survived obviously he was not in good condition but now he's in massachusetts so he wow. sends me this yeah exactly so he sends me this note uh good morning sir how are you today and then he says please i wish to find out if you know any humanitarian organizations in massachusetts which i can seek assistance from i live with a friend here and his landlady does not want two persons living in a bedroom and i have been asked to vacate the house i don't have any place to go i mean this is normal i get these sorts of messages because i'll exchange numbers with them and that sort of thing and it's just constant they end up in new jersey and florida and texas and they're homeless i mean you know and they're you know constantly begging for money which you know i i don't blame them they they're in a foreign country and they don't you know anything but uh and some of the like haitians a lot of the haitians go to florida interestingly 
I was talking with a prosecutor in Florida recently. You know, the, the lamestream, the, the, the total woke media is going after the state of Florida now because they're starting to prosecute uh, human smugglers. And I could go right. into depth on that, but I won't do it because there's ongoing things. And the bottom line is a prosecutor there who just flew out to Texas to see me, a Florida prosecutor, um, he, uh, he told me a story of a Honduran who was human trafficked over to Florida and he was given instructions to murder the guy that accepted him. Yeah. So he did. He stabbed him to death and it's on video. It's on video because it was on the home security, right? So the Honduran, well, he's in jail in Florida now. These sorts of things you just don't necessarily see in the news, but the prosecutor told me about it and he's like, yeah, it's, you know, quite normal, <laughs> you know? The, it, so they're, you know, working to put these uh, uh, human traffickers in prison. Meanwhile, the the woke media is, you know, uh, going after the state of Florida. I'm all, I'm from Florida. I love my state. In fact, I'm from Polk County. I voted for Grady Judd twice. You know, I don't really live there anymore, but I, I miss, I, I grew up there. It was a great place to grow up catching alligators and all that. Right. And, uh, but now it's Polk County where they're doing a lot of this, you know, the, 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 uh, the grand juries are convening and, and that sort of thing or a grand jury. And, and it's a, uh, yeah. And, and, and anyway, long story short, a prosecutor involved flew out to Texas to see me about 10 days ago or so. And we had a huge meeting right where I'm sitting now and uh, talking about this with border experts, National Guard, uh, other sorts of people in um, DPS. All, off, all, all offline. They're expecting now that the Title 42 thing is, you know, vaporized or whatever, it's going to be 30,000 a day. Are you hearing that number? Uh, nobody knows the numbers that could be right because the camps down below the border are, 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 uh, are filling up right. uh, because in, in anticipation, like Jason Jones, I think Jason, jo you know, Jason Jones, he's awesome, man. That guy's incredible. He sent me an incredible video a couple of days ago. The, the, um, Jason Jones is, um, he, he's on Newsmax, right? Right. And, uh, but usually I just look at the stuff that he sends me privately, but, but Jason, told me, I think Jason told me maybe 20,000, but that may, number may have changed because that was like 10 days. He was in this meeting with the prosecutor, right? Right. So, I mean, uh, so he was part of it. He was sitting at this chair right Yeah, here. the number I heard <laughs> so, as of yesterday a, is 30,000. Looked like it could be. we should expect 30,000 at a whack. It, it, it could be. A, a, um, a, a border patrol man told me he thought it would be 18 to 20. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'll call him up when we get off. When we get off this interview, I'll call him up and ask him what his current. I'll just message him while we're on. But I can uh, I can ask him what he what they project now. But actually, that sort of stuff usually depends on people like me or Jason or our contacts doing recons of these camps, right? Uh, because that's we are the people that that information comes from. I have not recon those camps recently because uh, I've been off in Europe and Asia. Uh, and, but, but just before I went, as you know, before I went to Europe on the food and energy issues, uh, I was in Mexico. Uh, I, in fact, uh, I was down in Mexico when I saw that the Dutch farmers were blocking the streets. Right. And I said, you know, because this is all part of the same thing. These are not separate. As you know, we've talked about that human osmotic pressure, the right. human osmotic pressure, the hop is the push and pull of migration. All of us have been, all of us or our family uh, lines have been in many hops, right? right. Uh, whether it's an exodus going way back or, or, you know, uh, I mean, for instance, or my family famine, or a potato famine, we've, we've been, through. yeah, 
Irish. You know, like that's what totally changed it. That's why we have so many Irish in the United States and so many Irish in Argentina and in Australia and in Canada, because that uh, the potato famine from 1845 to arguably 1852, some people say 1850, it doesn't matter, but let's say five to seven year famine right. drove out that that population still has not recovered. I was just over in Ireland, what, maybe two months ago. And in and, and Ireland now, so many migrants and Mary Lou McDonald, she's the um, She's the head of Sinn Féin, which is way leftist and, you know, like a Che Guevara everywhere. Literally, you go to the museum, right. they get but they're not, But they're not blowing stuff up anymore. <sighs> okay. Yet. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and they're not now. They're not now. They've been but... notorious for a while. Hard going. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Uh, you won't believe it, man. I was, okay. <laughs> I, I was just up in Dublin, and and um, – Actually, an Irish friend of mine just sent me a video about five days ago with Irish guys just going totally, uh, you know how they love to go fisticuffs, Irish right. and the Scots, right. like, you know, like to dust it up. And they were going crazy on some migrants that apparently were messing with Irish women, which I was like, hate to say I told you, but, you know, I've been to all these countries and I told you some fish don't mix well in the same aquarium. Period, right? right? Like like Cameroonians, uh, the the English speakers that I just read, they are famous for violence. Haitians are famous for violence. You know, some others are quite peaceful. It just depends on which which group of fish you got. Like for instance, Chechens. You know, I was over in Lithuania last year, and they gave me full access to their camps because the Belarus was pushing migrants over. They gave me access because I was with the Lithuanians over in. And Afghanistan. Uh -huh. So I was, I, I was down in Morocco with uh, last year with Chuck Holton, and we were checking migration from the Moroccans are pushing migrants to Ceuta and Melilla, which are two Spanish cities that are in Africa, actually. Right. Those are EU cities, actually, in Africa. So we were out with the migrants and Ceuta and all that. We didn't go inside Ceuta. We were just up to the wall. And and the bottom line is we, we saw that, hey, we called up um, – Frontex. Frontex is like the border patrol for all of Europe, which is tiny. They can't, they couldn't even, they couldn't even guard El Paso. But I mean, but Frontex said, hey, they're pushing, uh, Belarus is pushing migrants into Poland and Lithuania. I was like, Poland will never let, I live for Poland. I lived two years in Poland. Poland's not going to let people in. Like they, they, they won't, they don't roll like that. And uh, I lived there for two years. And, and so, and I, I called up Lith one of the Lithuanian army officers and I said, Hey, what's up? I uh, just talked with Frontex and they said, or Chuck did actually just talked with Frontex. And he said that, you know, Belarus is pushing migrants. And he's like, Hey, we just saw you guys that you're in uh, Morocco and we we're about to invite you up. And I'm like, well, I can be there in 24 hours. So Chuck and I, we flew from uh, Morocco up to Lithuania to Vilnius, immediately went into high level. And, uh, you know, because I was with them in Afghanistan. So mm -hmm. I had good con, you know, I, was, I did missions with them and stuff like that. So, I mean, so I have good contact. You know, I, I like the Lithuanians. We get along great. They're like 12 feet tall, man. They're like yep. Paul Bunny. They're unbelievable. They drink a lot of milk, you know, like the Dutch people and the Norwegians, you know. And so that, so I'm, they love basketball. So anyway, I, I was over there. I'm like, what, what's going on here? Why is Belarus doing this? They're weaponizing the migrants they gave me full access to the camps and, I, and i'm going somewhere with this i'm going to the fish in the aquarium so i said do you have so that was a long way around that mountain to get to the back to the fish in the aquarium but here we are so i said do you have any chechens and they're like well funny you should ask yeah we do and i said um where are they can i see them you know because we're looking for like piranha fish here right, right. And they're like oh yeah we we keep them separate and i was like <laughs> i wonder why and they're like because 
they, they have actually a joke. They, it, interestingly, anthropologically, they came to the same conclusion that I do. Cultures have critical masses, right? Some cultures, like if you like, like Russians, I get along great with a few Russians. You get like 20 Russians going, man, and it can get a lot of control. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, and, and, uh, and, um, and, um, and, uh, and so it's the same with Chechens. And so they had already a joke. Their Chechen critical mass is six. If you have more than six Chechens, you have to split them up. So seven Chechens, critical mass, they become uber Chechen, right? And they become like gangsters and stuff, you know? And so that's what I keep telling people. They, they, they have, especially Americans in Europe. I lived in Europe for six years. I lived in Poland for two and Germany for four. I've been all over that place. I just spent another four months over there, right? And so, they, you know, they don't realize that a lot of these people they're pulling in, they're pulling them in by the tribe. They're not right. pulling in one guy. Like I was talking with this Nigerian guy over in, um, in, uh, in, um, in, in Ireland recently. And he's like, you know, w- he was my taxi driver. I'm like, oh, I'm from Nigeria. I said, what tribe are you from? He starts talking. I said, uh, do you hook up with other Nigerians or other Africans or whatever? Because I know how people go, we, we will coalesce. Like if I go somewhere and I see Americans, I'll be like, hey, what's going on here? Right? Because we can talk on a cultural level and they can interpret things for me on that level. Right? And so right. he goes, no, I knew what he was going to say. He goes, no, we don't hook up with other Nigerians or Africans. We go for our tribe which is what they always say. And that's what I tell Americans. When you get Kurdish people, you might think, oh, they're Kurds. And I love Kurds. I've been up to Kurdistan quite a lot. But they will go with their tribe. That's what they do, right? And there's different Kurdish tribes, right? Yes, it's not like Kurds go hook up with Kurds. They yeah. go find other people from their tribe. Yeah. So, And so that's a lot of things that people don't realize is that you're pulling in not just a fish from a different aquarium. You're pulling in a whole school of fish. They will form what I call anthro insula, it's been described many times, but there was never a word for it. So I just made up the word. And anthro insula is a human island, right? When you get enough people from one group, like uh, like Germans do it. I had dinner, lunch yesterday in New Braunfels, Germany, right? I'm Germany. They came from Braunfels, Germany, New right. Braunfels, Texas. Right. So basically, they'll just take like a whole a village and move Germans and will move deep into Asia or deep into South America, or go to Texas. I mean, they would literally at times have like a village just picks up lock, stock, and barrel and goes over there, right? So Germans have the, they had at least in the last century, human islands everywhere. It's uh-huh. quite interesting. And, and, and for instance, um, Americans from the Civil War who went to Brazil, and they talk in the dialect that my grandparents speak. And they talk the same way my grandparents speak. They're down in Brazil. They came from the southern part of the United States, where my grandparents were from, or I'm from. And and they, but they, I have a different dialect than my grandparents, right? And 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 when I was watching this this uh, uh, documentary with these people down in Brazil, I'm like, wow! Not only do they speak the same way my grandparents speak, they talk about the same things, right? They talk about sitting out on the porch and what they're talking about because that's what that that culture. What I'm getting to with anthro insula. It's very important. Chinese do this. There's overseas Chinese all over the place. They're in Indonesia. They're in Thailand. Mm-hmm. You go to a Chinatown in Chiang Mai, Thailand, where I have an office. You go to, you go to that uh, Chinatown. It's more Chinese than Beijing. I've been all over China. You, you, go to, you go to Chinatown in San Francisco is more Chinese than Shanghai. I mean, it's, it's like when I go to San Francisco, uh, uh, um, Chinatown, I went there again this year or last year. I'm like, see, this is more Chinese than 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 uh, Shenzhen, you know, it's like, it's like unbelievable. And so, but it's a human island, right? 
There's nothing bad or good or wrong with it. It's just, it's a, it's a neutral statement. Now, how do these human islands form? They form when you have enough people from said culture that they can do a lot of their stuff internally, right? right. They don't really have to absorb. They don't really have to learn that. Let's say that, let's say the donor and the recipient, right? right? Let's say the oil spot comes into the grid. And so, um, so they'll keep their old dialects, which is quite interesting. So you'll see people, uh, Germans, let's say that are deep out in some place like Ukraine, and they're speaking an old, old dialect of German, and they write it in the old ways, right? And they tell the old stories because they, they become like a little time capsule, right? And they're all over the world. Well, in any case, one of the, thing, one of the markers of a human, an anthro, and I just made up the word human island, anthro insula, is, is the, um, they don't intermarry. If you intermarry, for instance, like Filipinos, Filipinos come in and blend instantly, right? Yeah. Like, like in one generation, they're totally American, even in that generation, because we instantly intermarry. We, like if you had the fish chart of fish on the you know, aquarium here, you know, the fish that get along and the red fish are Chechens, you know, red, 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 doesn't get along with any other fish, including other Chechens, you know, <laughs> and, then, and then you get the green fish. That would be like Filipinos. They're like the universal donor. They get along. Everywhere I go in the country, it's like in the world, it's like a joke for me. I'm like, okay, check. I found Michael Jackson. Check. There's Coke. There's Pepsi. And there's Filipinos, right? There like, and there goes a German tourist. There's always one of those too. Right. So, and, so, and, uh, and me. And so, you know, like I see Filipinos everywhere and they get along, right? So, but they'll blend as well. They'll intermarry. Like if Filipinos go to Japan, they instantly intermarry, right? Right. And so, so they don't really like Filipinos. Yeah, there's a Filipino town in Los Angeles or whatever, but they don't really form human islands because they just blend right in. And what I'm getting to is, is a lot of these millions of people that we're pulling in now, they will form little anthro insulas and they will bring their fights from, from like you'll see Turks and Kurds fighting in Germany, right? You'll see Turks and Kurds. Event, or, and in the United States, they get into fights together, right? Because they bring their fights from there. To here. That's how we had our Revolutionary War. We were bringing our own fights over, right? Um, when you know, fighting, you know, you got the Scots fighting the English, and you know, you know, I'm Scott Irish culture. We, you know, love to fight. We don't like women who don't like guns. You know, what I mean that sort of thing. And that, that comes from, you know, if a woman can't shoot a bear, what use is she? I mean, that's the culture I come from, right? Right. Uh, seriously, <laughs> she needs to be able to read and shoot bears, you know. And so, so but uh, and uh, so, I mean, that's so, yeah, that's my cultural way, right? And it's not. It's funny when people look at the uh, like um, uh, 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 gun, o- gun owners in America, and they're like, "Oh, you know, it's a manhood thing." I'm like, uh, "That's like, um, no. <laughs> it is so deeply cultural. It's like you will never get it out, right?" It's just like, it's part of the, it's part of you. It's a substrate. Anyway, I was over in, um, over in, in uh, Europe looking at how things have formed as they started pulling in those millions of migrants. And of course, people like us were, were invaders, actually. And in many cases, they don't realize they're invaders. They'll be weaponized later or just their presence, like this Cameroonian guy over in Massachusetts, now homeless. Uh, they'll, you know, they will group up, right? And, uh, and, and we're going into serious economic and food problems, right? What's he going to do when he's hungry? He's going to, he's going to go eat, you know, it's not, he's human like we are, you know, right. if we're hungry and the kids are hungry or we're just hungry, we're going to go find some food. Right. Like there's a restaurant next door. I'm like, hmm, restaurant, freezer, food, you know? I mean, it's like, you know, this is not complicated. One of the things that you'll find, by the way, 
You see Walmart, I know you wanted to talk about food. Walmart, I see, you know, there's reports that they're closing stores or talking about closing more stores, just like who was it, uh, that drug, those drug stores in, in San Francisco, Rite Aid or something CBS. like that. See, yeah, they, they closed yeah. some stores, right? Right. And one, this is interesting because this follows an old pattern that predates, you know, any of our grandparents' lives even, is that when you start to go into economic or food crisis, which can can be, they will co-mingle, but they're, sometimes they're separate and sometimes one cause, anyway, not, we can go into that another time, but you, what you'll have is people will start doing a lot more crime, right? And so then you'll see the stores will stop stocking things, right? And, or they'll close, right? And the, and the transportation will close because people start robbing the trucks, they start robbing the boats and everything. Nobody wants to get Reginald Denny for, you know, to take their truck downtown, right? Uh, and, and that's what'll happen, right? And so now you create these food deserts, or in the case of San Francisco, now the people will go just go further out. So right. when a Publix or a Kroger's or, uh, or Walmart closes, the people still need their food and the robbers still need to rob because that's some of them, that's just the way they roll and others are desperate. You know, they got, right. they got to eat. And so, um, uh, and they'll just spread out and go to the suburbs. And that's why people keep telling me, oh, it's okay. I live in the suburbs. I'm like, you don't know how this happens. That human osmotic pressure happens internally as well. I mean, you'll, that pressure, that osmotic pressure might come from five miles from you or 20 or 30 miles in old knowledge. Uh, old knowledge was to live at least two days walk from a city, right? To right. to avoid the initial, because two days was a little bit too far for most people to flash mob something, right? Right. Uh, it, it, so two days of old people walking, meaning you know the guys that could walk thirty miles in a day and like get up and walk thirty five miles the next and right. do that consistently, and that, just, and that was just the school each day. <laughs> Yeah, that, I mean, that, I mean, you know, and, that, uh, and like in Nepal, it's for instance, I was in Afghanistan. I was with Gurkhas, right? With the I was with the British Army and the Gurkhas, yep. and, and and some of the one of the sergeant majors. He was a great guy. He's like, uh, I I spent a year in Nepal, right? So I'm kind of familiar with it. And 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 I've been with the Gurkhas in Afghanistan and Iraq, and I went to a tracking school with them in Brunei, British Army, British military tracking school, and. Uh, and one of the uh, Gurkhas, he's like, please don't publish my photos. I'm like, why? And you're doing a great job. I mean, your, your family should know. And you're really a great soldier. He was a great soldier. And uh, he said, no, the Taliban will see my photo. I'm like, who cares? He's like, they will come to my family. I'm like, how are they going to do that, man? You live, I know where you live. I've been to your village. You know what I mean? He's like, they will walk. And I'm like, well, actually... <laughs> Uh, Taliban or a Gurkha, you know, because they look at that. I'm like, that's like 4,000 miles away or something right. through the Himalaya, through Pakistan, up through the. They will do it. And I'm like, you know, because he knows he would, right? He and he, he could. Not only would he, he could. You know what one I mean? Of, one of my most prized possessions is I have a uh, an old Gurkha knife, right? You know, there I got one here somewhere. Yeah. I have, a, I have a wonderful Gurkha. I love it. I love it. But anyway, but those are great, man. Those are, are. I got I got one from the Gurkha camp up at Pokhara. That's their like their main camp. Uh huh. And, and so I I um I walked up and I knocked on the gate. I was like, "Hello, Namaste," you know. And uh, and um, anyway, they let me in. Some of them knew me from Afghanistan. So anyway, they gave me a Gurkha knife. Yeah, I love them. I think they're great. A great yeah. design. So let's talk. Okay, so we're we're having yeah. this push pull. Last time you yeah. talked about. Where fertilizers being shut down, railways are being shut down, and this is a pandemic of food proportions. And so now we're being invaded. We we know what's coming here. We've talked about it, and 
they're pushing the limits globally. What I was really interested in is your firsthand experience with what the king of Thailand did with tilapia. And folks, let me show you something real quick. I want to show you a few things. This is a tilapia. Now, good eating. Oh, they're wonderful eating. Let me tell you a story, Michael. You'll love this. When I was a kid growing up in San Antonio, Texas, in the 70s at uh, Lake Calaveras, which was one of the nuke plants they had at the time, because they're always throwing off hot water, right? So they got this big lake. And they had a problem with algae. And so they flew in these damn tilapia. A tilapia basically eats grass and weeds, folks, right? And so I'm out with my father. And we're throwing everything we can at these damn fish because they, they're in herds, right? <laughs> and they wouldn't bite anything because they're not going to bite a worm or a lure or anything else. And finally, one of these days, one day, my father kind of saw some up in like a little jetty creek kind of thing, I guess, eating weeds or something. And so he just eased it up in there and dipped his net down and pulled out about 50, right? And yeah. went yeah. home and and did and skinned those things, uh, kind of like a crappie, a good fish, a perch. It was amazing. And these things are an incredible food supply. They say that they'll feed the country, they'll feed the world. And I want to I want to show you this so you understand. So that's what the tilapia looks like. And people build ponds. This is a very simple pond. This one's a little more sophisticated because they sealed it in. I like Most that. People, isn't that a nice pond? They they sealed. Is that it concrete in. or what is it? How they seal it? It's a seal coat of so I think they use the same oh. uh, roll-on seal coat that they do most to pools, but it's not concrete. Uh -huh. It's just a seal coat because you can see it's pretty thin on the edges. And these fish, because they eat um, grass, you can actually grow, and I'm doing this for scale, on top of the water, you can grow a thing called duckweed that reproduces like crazy. It's just like this crazy kind of little bitty slime. And these things, if it's you were- It's not raising, slimy, though. It's not slimy. No, we used yeah. to swim in that. Yeah, but it's just all over the place, right? You're speckled in yeah. it. And it grows on top of the water. And these things can eat your grass cuttings, hay cuttings, whatever the case it is. And literally in these ponds, this is what's feeding a lot of the world protein. And they just kind of scoop them up and these things reproduce like crazy. Here's a big one. This is a a, a blue tilapia, a blue Nile uh, tilapia. Uh, and they come in different ranges and things, but they're a great fish. But you were telling me a story that Thailand prepared for this the the former king not the current king but the former king actually prepared for his people so they would always be able to feed themselves was that his intent when he did it yeah interesting you know to tell that story let's rewind to late 1700s i think okay. maybe 1783 if my memory's right could be off anyway 1780s or so uh there was a famine in japan Right. Japan has a lot of famines. Right. Uh, maybe 506 in the last 1500 years. It's actually unknown. Um, and uh, but there's a lot. And um, famine was coming. And one uh, 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 he was a, a, a landlord, a feudal lord. He saw it coming and he had everybody uh, build fish ponds. Right. And so and, and he told them what kind of uh, 
grasses they could forage and how to prepare the grasses over 70 types of grasses he had like a survival manual written actually right. and uh, in japanese right and of course and and uh and he um told them for instance to grow ginger in the hedge that would go around the fish ponds and and just all kinds of things and none of his people died but uh, but about nine hundred thousand others died and that that was called the 10 may famine right of uh you could look it up, 1783 or something like. I think it was 1783. And um, and uh, interestingly, I don't know where the fish pond idea came from, but they were using it then at that time, right? And for instance, you know uh, the Doc Chambers, the Green Beret doctor, who's been all over the news for the last year and a half for whistleblowing for uh, for vaccine and that sort of thing. He's part Chickasaw Indian. We just spent several days together down on the border. We're always rolling around together. In fact. In fact, he's got my kukri right now, and uh, and uh, he just went to the reservation this morning. He'll be back in a couple of days, and we're going to head back to to the border. But but he, we were talking about this. We were talking about the fish ponds. He said, "Yeah, we got them up on the. Uh, they don't call it a reservation. They call it a nation, right? Uh -huh. And so they so in Oklahoma, he said we got fish ponds everywhere. I'm like, well, there you go. Indians doing it too, right? And um, so now you go up into the 1833. There was a big famine in Japan again, right? And for some reason, a guy named uh, 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 Kenjiro, he's, there's statues of him all over the J Japanese schools, right? He's my he's actually my screensaver on my phone, Kenjiro. He's, he's a boy that's walking, carrying a bunch of sticks, reading a book, you know? He was autodidact. His, his family was almost killed in a flood when he was a little kid, and, and then his and then his mother and dad died young, and then he just taught himself to read, right? And and he he his he lived with his uncle, and his uncle wouldn't let him use the oil to read at night, so he started making his own oil out of the plants and stuff. He was that kind of boy, you know, like chemist of his time, you know. And and so he uh, Kenjiro learned a lot about he learned a lot about how Mother Nature worked, right. and he was very observant, and he. Uh, and he read a lot. That's all. He, that's why there's the famous statue of him. There's one in Los Angeles. I, I saw it earlier this year, I think. And, uh, and there's a statue of Kenjiro holding a book, carrying the sticks down in J Japantown in Los Angeles. And so Kenjiro, um, he saw that a famine was coming because in the early part of the summer, the leaves were coming off the trees. And he's like, and the eggplant, he said, tasted like it was from the fall, not from the early summer, and which is better tasting. And he's like, Mother Nature is telling me what's about to happen. We're not going to have, we're not going to have a summer because we're having the leaves are falling off the trees. It's the beginning of summer. So he started telling everybody, stop, stop with the rice and all this plant millet right now, because millet, and they're like, we don't, we have enough millet, you know, and millet, we like other stuff. He's like, no, you know, he, he was very persuasive. He persuaded people to grow millet and do other things, fish ponds and all these sorts of things. And, uh, and none of his people died. That's why he's, he's so famous in Japan because he, 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 he saved people in multiple famines, right? He would see it coming because Mother Nature will tell you what it's up to, or in some cases, it's the, it's an evil enemy, you know, or, right. or a bad enemy, you know. And uh, they, they like, um, with the Irish famine, a lot of that was not caused by the blight. The blight was important. The blight was, was set the conditions, but it was actually the English and other landlords that actually nailed it home because Americans – Including Chickasaw Indians were trying to send money over to the, they 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 were we were trying to send aid to the Irish starving the English wouldn't let you know there's only a few harbors you could get the food in so anyway so, so there's often a, an enemy component to this right right but the bottom line is let's fast forward 
in the 18 and in, in, in 1950 thailand had about 20 million people right i have an office there so it's not just random that i know about thailand stuff you know so i have an office in chiang mai right and um and i've been out and i've seen their agricultural product uh, projects they've given me great tours and you know so that i could study their history of how they got to where they're at now so in 1950s they had 1950 they had about 20 million people estimated not many roads either and then and now there's about 70 million right so it's gone from 20 to 70 million from 1952 now wow. and um and in the in the 60s in the 1960s uh the united states was building roads and doing things vietnam war was kicking up and that sort of thing and um in in the king of thailand king rama Knight, great guy great friend of the united states also studied water and agriculture he's been everywhere man everywhere i go in thailand you'll be out in some remote village two days walk out in the jungle and there'll be a photo of him in that jung in that village i mean he's just been he was famous for like he didn't leave anything unturned and he, he knew his people he knew his land and he knew he could see that a famine was coming right in the in the 1960s and he's like uh oh you know what are we going to do there's always see, there's always people who see it coming that's one of the lessons i've learned on studying famines there's always some people like kenjiro or osugi kenjiro was in the uh, early you know 18 for instance that 1833 famine in in, uh, in japan uh, he saw it coming by the taste of the you know the eggplants and the leaves falling off the tree and other indicators that mother nature was was offering up and uh Usugi noticed the same thing what about 50 or so years earlier in japan as well and so they just saw it coming and there's always those who see it coming king rama knight saw it coming he's like we have a protein shortage so he got a team together and they couldn't quite crack the code they were working on it he's a very smart guy and um and he saw it coming right and so his team's working on it so he contacts uh, Crown Prince uh, Akihito in Japan. And Akihito is his friend, right? And Akihito is like, hey, we know what to do. I mean, we do fish ponds. And so he's like, he sent him 50 of these Nile uh, tilapia, right? Mm -hmm. And according to the story, 40 died. And then they raised the other 10 at, a, at one of the palaces. And they built, you go to Thailand now, there's fish ponds everywhere, man. Right. You go into villages, they'll be like, where's the fish pond? They're like, here's one. There's, it looks like the bomb craters almost, right? It's like, there's so many fish ponds, you know? I, I think of that because I think of the bomb craters of Laos that they made in the fish ponds that I've seen, actually. And so, um, and so they filled these Nile uh, tilapia, not Nile perch. We have Nile perch in Florida as well. That's a slightly different fish. We used to catch those like crazy with cast nets, you right. know, the vegetarian fish, and you can eat them like crazy. I mean, if you know how to get those Nile perch out of the lakes, like Lake Parker at Lakeland, Florida, that thing's packed with them, man. Uh, you can get it. You, you wouldn't believe it. Uh, and they grow so fast, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's what happened in Thailand. So, the you know, Crown Prince Akihito was like, you know, do the fish pond thing. And, and <laughs> of course, <clears throat> uh, the king, uh, Rama Ninth, had them in the rivers and the lakes. They're everywhere now. So, I mean, Thailand, their, their protein problem was solved for that level of population, right? And so it was over. That's why you never heard of the famine in the 1960s in Thailand, because it never happened, right? He saw it coming. He took action. It never happened. They had a protein shortage for a while. It's done. Now the population has grown dramatically. And a lot of it has grown due to the, you know, rice really sucks the nitrogen out of the soil. And like, like, crazy so they export rice i was joking with uh with uh one of the former prime ministers uh, a month or so ago in bangkok his name's we were having coffee uh, uh abhisit is his name his nickname is mark 
And I was like, you know, you don't export. He's like, we export so much rice. I'm like, you don't export rice. You export nitrogen. Right. right. And you, you, you imported last year, 5 million tons of nitrogenous fertilizers, mostly urea and ammonium sulfate. You only create 8% or so of your fertilizer, right? The other 92% you fertilize, you, you import. Right. And so, uh, <clears throat> You're not getting, you usually get most of it from Europe. They're exporting zero. I just left Europe. I just left there and came to you, right? I flew, I just, I told him, I just spent four months rolling around Europe, looking at the fertilizer plants, talking with farmers, talking with just everybody you can imagine, scientists. And, you know, uh, Jordan Peterson came over and spent two days with me, that sort of thing, right? So, I mean, I was really showing, you know, I, I told him, I said, you know, the reason I ask you to coffee is not because I like you, you know, I do, but it's because I'm warning you, Thailand could go into a famine. And, uh, and he's like, no, we've got so much food exports. And I was like, you know what, I just left Ireland. And, and they're saying the same thing. And Ireland is wrong, too. Because when you're on the balance sheet, you know, you're an Oxford educated man, you look at the balance sheet, you have to calculate your inputs, right? You have to get... Where does this diesel come from? Where does these fertilizers, where do these fungicides, pesticides, herbicides come from? I'll tell you where they come from. The, the fungicides and the herbicides and the pesticides, they all came from the same companies that make the ammonium sulfate and the ammonium uh, nitrate and the, and the urea and these other nitrogenous fertilizers. They come from BASF. They come from Yara. I was just at BASF twice this year, right? 10 square kilometer chemical plant. I've been saying on many interviews this year, Watch BASF. There's a reason I'm a B. If I'm somewhere, you should probably be paying attention to it because I don't really go on vacations, right? I mean, and why would I go to Ludwigshafen? It's just not a nice town. Sorry, people from Ludwigshafen. I've been all over your country, Germany. I love it, but uh, not Ludwigshafen. You know, not even the You're beer. Right. <laughs> I don't drink beer anymore. I, my army days are over. But I mean, <laughs> but yeah, you know, but um. Uh, the, uh, but, uh, it's too bad. I don't, you know, because I'm actually in a brewery right now. So, <laughs> but, uh, but the, um, the, uh, the beer is safe with me, but the bottom line is Ludwigshafen is the Genesis, or let's say not really, there was a, there was a, there was a German chemist named, uh, uh, Fritz Haber, Fritz Haber. And in 1905, Fritz Haber wrote a book on thermodynamics. He was a chemist. At this time, chemistry was actually coming of its own. Chemistry was actually a real science by now, you know, right. and they were really doing scientific method, you know, and uh, Fritz Haber, you know, this is a problem. Let's rewind the tapes again to 1800s. <clears throat> People were using guano for fertilizer a lot. You know, there was the guano act and all sorts of things. So we found that guano was a great fertilizer. And of course, guano is the country with the best uh, food. Just so you understand, people back then were, in fact, batshit crazy. Oh, yeah. That shit crazy came from people working in bat caves, getting the guano out. And it made them great. You know, it's like the Mad Hatter, except it was guano style. It's funny. Just before we came on this interview, if Beth, if you're watching, uh, or Bev, I'm sorry, Bev, if you're watching, she sent me, she had just gone out and bought some guano and sent me a photo. Hello. And oh, so we're talking about you and, um, and, and they're still selling it. So anyway, the, the guano is a great fertilizer, right? But... There's only so much guano out there. And, and also, uh, you, can, you can make explosives out of guano, right? And we learned that in special forces training. Actually, it's, it's, yeah, it's quite, you do it. I mean, they, they did the Civil War and all that stuff. The United States are using it to make explosives and all this. Anyway, bottom line is the Germans 
were kind of cut off from the guano because we and others were cutting the Germans off. And the Germans are like, we have, we're having chemists, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, they, they, uh, so Fritz Haber is like, you know, we can somehow make our own fertilizers, right? And so he got to work. And so in 1905, he came up with this, and also you make a lot of explosives, not just fertilizers. Yes. So, so they, they, the Germans always tell you, we did this for the fertilizer to help humanity. And other people are like, well, you know, makes great explosives too, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, and so, um, and, and so he got to work. He wrote that book on thermodynamics. And in 1908, he actually made some, which is difficult to do. It takes high pressures and all sorts of things. So he had his eureka moment like, I have ammonia, right? Okay, you can make a drop of ammonia. But how can we go into business with this and like take off of our dependence on, you know, imported guano and these sorts of things and make bombs, you know, World War One, that sort of thing kicking up or, you know, just, you know, Germans are a martial culture, right? And so, um, or Germanic tribes, let's say. And so, uh, so th that's when, um, when uh, 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 Bosch came along, Karl Bosch with a C, not with a K, even though he's German too, another German chemist, Karl Bosch, he comes along. Now he, in addition to being a chemist, he also knew how to make the machines work, right? He knew how to like bring this up to scale. And so in 1913 in Ludwigshafen, that town I was at twice this year, 10 square kilometer factory now, uh, or plant, uh, BASF, uh, that's where he started. They, they uh, hired uh, Karl Bosch to, to make this industrial scale. So by 19, he started that in 1913 at Ludwigshafen on the Rhine River, right? So by 1915, they were doing this at scale. They were really pumping out some, some uh, nitrogenous fertilizers and, you know, explosives and that sort of thing going to World War One and, you know, blah, 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 right? So <clears throat> now the population was already, you know, human population was already uh, increasing for many reasons. One is we had better ships. We had the ability to move stuff around. Mm -hmm. uh, technology was slowly increasing, right? And now, bingo, Haber-Bosch process, Fritz Haber, the chemist who invented the Eureka, we've got ammonia, to Carl Bosch, who is like, now we got a lot of ammonia, right? And that's the Haber-Bosch process. And the Haber-Bosch process is attributed to why we have maybe an extra 4 billion people on Earth right now, right? Billion with a B people. So this is, you know, you can see, look at, look at the population chart. When these fertilizers really started rolling out, I mean, it goes vertical, right? And other technologies have improved with, uh, if you call it improvement, you know, if you want to have more people alive, certainly an improvement. Uh, <clears throat> pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, uh, uh, you know, different uh, seeds and, you know, GMOs, all, the, you know, all these sorts of things, right? And um, <clears throat> actually, let's rewind the tape again back to 1845. Where did that Irish famine actually come from? It's believed it came, well, it started with a potato blight, right? Where'd that potato blight come from? It's actually, it's believed, but not certain that it came from uh, a fungus on, on, the, uh, bat, on the guano, batter, bird guano, right? And so it, it's believed that it came from a fungus. That's actually unknown. But anyway, tidbit. Now we get up to now. If you wanted to, let's say, be World Economic Forum, and your stated goal is to reduce the population of Earth to say 500 million, which is a stated goal, you know, from roughly how how many are here? I don't know, seven or eight billion, right? Well, so eight, we're talking, right? yeah. So let's million. let's 
let's just argument and say eight. So that would mean 15 out of 16 people going to die, right? And so if, if they succeed. So how are you going to do this? Well, Haber-Bosch process. It's got, you know, when you're doing sabotage on a small or a large scale, you look for critical nodes. You look for a critical node is, for instance, you saw the people just shot some transformers up in Moore County in, in, uh, in North Carolina, near Fort right. Bragg, right? Right. And, um, and so I actually went to school for that sort of stuff when I was in Special Forces. It's quite interesting. When we're going to school for that and we're, we're realizing, like, wow, everything has critical nodes. Like, we have a heart, right? Uh, we, we have certain things that if you interrupt that, <laughs> the whole system is gone, right? Uh, and so um, they hit the right things with their rifles and all that power went out, right? And it's just a few shots, really, right? And so and these sorts of things can be done on a global scale, right? Um, for instance, interrupt the Haber-Bosch process. At a place like BASF, that's why I've been warning about BASF. I've been doing so many, I, I think I said this in a Jordan Peterson interview, watch BASF. If that goes offline, Europe as we know it is dead. That's the heart attack, right? And it is. It did it about five or six weeks ago. They're no, still it's operating offline, correct? It, it's not com not completely offline, but they're they're turning out the lights and and they're moving operations to places like China and the United States. But it's not just going to be some well, we move over there. No, this thing took, it hasn't stopped since 1952. I think you can't just turn it off. Mm -mm. You can't just turn. It's like when power plants go off. If you get a if you get a hard blackout, like a massive regional blackout, not just, you know, one plant, but you can't just crank that bad boy back up again. It's, it's complex. It's like, it's like a body dying in a sense, right? And so if, if BASF, like when I was inside a BASF plant some months ago, you know, uh, a guy that I was speaking with, uh, an employee, he's like, if we turn this off because we don't have enough gas, this plant is dead. It's not going to come. I mean, we could restart it, but it could take years to restart this thing. It's like, it'd be like Frankenstein putting another body back together. Right. We have explosions and leaks and all kinds of stuff. <clears throat> Natural gas. What feeds Nord Stream or Nord Stream? What feeds BASF? Nord Stream, right? Because the Germans and their whatever, it wasn't brilliance. You know, Trump was warning them. Trump's not my favorite guy, but he was warning people clearly about your dependence on Russia for that gas. And you remember the Germans laughing at him. And the, uh, we who understand Haber-Bosch process and BASF and the Yara plants and all that, we're like, you better listen to Mr. Orange. He's right. telling you the truth. Right. If that gets cut off, you're dead. Right. Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2, right? I mean, you cut that, it's over, right? And uh, and we saw Russia cut down. There's a there's actually a website you can see the flows, right? And I used to watch those flows. I had this iPad open. I would watch their flows, right? When Russia cut those things down, uh, you know, to zero, you know, everybody, you know, Europe is starting to sweat. That's why I went to BASF, and I'm like, hey, what does this mean to BASF? I already know what it means. It means you're gonna die. Nord Stream Two is not even open. It's pressurized, but due to pressure from the United States they weren't opening it but it could have been open Nord stream one was flowing cooking now that we got the war in ukraine and the germans and others are like yay let's go have a war with russia and putin's like uh, 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 okay 
we closed it off for maintenance, uh, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, then he started it back up again to, I think, 23%. And, uh, and then he warned that he was going to cut it off on what, uh, November 30th or October 1st? I don't recall, but I was up late at night somewhere in Europe watching the, 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 the because there's a live website that monitors the flows. And I was like, and it went to zero, just like Putin said he would do, but remember he can just turn it right back on again, probably with a probably a phone call. You know, hey, turn Nord right. Stream back on, right? <clears throat> and it, it just keeps flowing; it's no problem, right? Anyway, then somebody, somebody, blew it up, Nord Stream one and Nord Stream two, and that was when immediately I'm like, that's it, Europe's done, man, it's gone. The Europe we know yeah, is gone let's with let's the wind. Side, let's take a side note here. People yeah. are saying, I looked at the. I looked at the one mini sub that was stalled, the drone sub stalled right. by the pipeline that they left over. looked like they had tried it before. The second drone attacked work, which took out two. I hear it was a U.N. operation. What have you heard? Oh, well, our government, including Biden, if he right. remembers, also threatened Nord Stream 2. Right. Um, and I mean, we were very, we were crystal clear. Our government was. And to me. If we did it, and we almost certainly did or had a huge part in it, it's actually kind of hard to imagine we didn't. Yeah, I don't separate that the two. I, I should have stated that. I believe our government was in on it, allowing it that, to happen. That's a NATO attack on NATO, right? I mean, yes. that's, that's, a, that's a wartime level attack. Right. That is an attack. Because remember, remember, Putin could have turned those back on. And they immediately blame Putin for, for, for doing this. I'm like, and why would Putin right. do that? No, that, he would have turned it back on. Russia invested half of the, I think, half of the money to build that with Germany, right? That's right. Cut, cutting their own. Russia wants to sell the gas. You That's know, right. Russia's Russia's pragmatic. I mean, they're not a bunch of crazy loons dressed up like dogs. I mean, these are like serious people, right? Uh, you know, uh, you know, we're trade we're trading off some drug junkie for a for an arms dealer. You know what I mean? It's like you can't even make up this stuff. It, basically, it's arms dealers trading a junkie for another arms dealer. You know, it's like, you know, I mean, what what are we? We just left billions to the Taliban, and we're sending it to anyway. Not to go into that, but the bottom line is, of the twenty nine plants across Europe who create these fertilizers, they're either all offline already, or they're they're offline to the point where well, there's no there's Europe is exporting zero fertilizer. Zero nitrogen, zero fertilizers are being exported from Europe. So when I was there with Jordan Peterson for two days, I invited for the first dinner a scientist to come and tell some interesting science stuff. And on the second night, I invited a guy named Hank Thaw. He's a retired CEO of the largest Dutch chemical company, basically the BASF of Netherlands, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and I said, I'm just going to sit here and eat my steak because I eat steak. While you guys, please uh, uh, brief Jordan on everything you've told me, and I'll just be quiet, <laughs> you know. And uh, so for two hours, you know, Hank Dahl and Jordan are, you know, Furby back and forth. A lot of questions. You know how smart Jordan is. I mean, he's a brilliant dude. So he's asking all the right questions. And um, and here, here's some takeaways from that incredible meeting. I wish I could have recorded it, but these kind of offline, um, off off record stuff. I mean, it's not off record. I can talk about it, but, but I mean, uh, but he. Uh, uh, Hank Dahl, the retired CEO, who's still, you know, involved in all this stuff because, you know, these guys know each other, right? He's like, well, first of all, 
Brazil's not getting any fertilizer. They can't get it from Saudi Arabia. They can't get it from Trinidad and Tobago. They're not going to get it from China. Uh, India, not getting fertilizers. Uh, they are not going to get it. I said, what about Thailand? He's like, same. I was like, uh-oh, I got to fly to Thailand. You know, I didn't say it to him. I asked Thailand for a reason because I know a lot of serious people there, like the ex-prime minister, you know. And uh, and so, um, And so I said, what does this mean for Brazil? And he's like, you know, hunger. And, uh, and what about India? Hunger. Look, India right now is starting to plant huge amounts that they didn't normally plant. They see it coming. I hope they can plant enough because, you know, they're basically doing a mega-sized Sri Lanka at this time. Remember, Sri Lanka went organic and ended up with, you know, thousands of men storming the castle and wrestling in the president's bed, swimming in his pool and working out in his gym. I'm sure you saw the videos. Now, scale that out to to India. And, you know, I have friends in India that are send, sending me sit reps all the time, situation reports, likewise in Nepal, you know, sending me sit reps, prices are going up. They still got food and everything's fine, but the conditions are, you know, as we go into 2023 and these, all the warehouses continue, every, every bite that people take right now, only a portion of that bite is being replaced, right? And, um, and so, we're clearly going to go into global famines in 2023. The question is, how big are they going to be? Who's going to be affected first? Who's going to be affected most? An interesting thing about famines, for instance, let's talk about the 1845 to 1852-ish famine in Ireland. Um, some of the counties were not even affected uh, or only in a minor way. Their prices went up or whatever. They had plenty of food. Other counties were partially affected and others were literally down to cannibalism. And that's on the little island of Ireland. Mm -hmm. Likewise, over in China or Ukraine during the Holodomor, Ukraine, uh, 1933, 32, 33, same parts of Ukraine, some Ukrainians and part of Ukraine didn't even believe there was a famine. They're like, they were hearing stories. They're like, famine, that's a lie. And it was like, you know, 20 miles away. It's like, it, it, likewise in China, Henan province um, was one of the biggest bread baskets of China. That was where some of the worst famine was. One of the, And I would say the worst known famine in human history was that famine orchestrated by Mao, right? Uh, and I would say, though, that what's about to come is going to dwarf uh, Mao's Great Famine and the whole lot of more combined. Mao's was 10 million people, 20 million mm, people? It depends on who you want to believe. I don't know. I mean, you know, you'll read numbers of 50 million and then people get excited and say 70 million. I don't know. I have no idea. And there's no way to know. I mean, there's no way to know. Uh, it you know, a lot of more. What was that number? I don't know. I mean, uh, some people say two million or four million or six million, and I, it's just unknown. And it's an unknowable. Actually, it was quite severe. Uh, and and uh, and the Irish famine. Actually, that number also remain. It'll forever remain unknown. We know that it's uh, you know left a deep scar. But you know, these weren't the first famines. Like. Uh, Ireland also, I, I kept warning the Irish about this. I just messaged to an Irish guy today over there who does podcast. You know, the Irish, the uh, famine is endemic to Ireland, just like it's endemic to Japan. You know, um, famine, there's been many, nobody knows how many famines there's been. Like there was a huge one in 1733. Uh, there was a significant one in 1733. I don't know if it was huge. How do we know? But the, 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 po the population between 1733 and Ireland in 1845, the next famine had actually tripled, which is similar to the uh, uh, 
many populations around the world have, you know, have increased dramatically in the last hundred years. I mean, the whole global population is totally vertical. And now we're cutting these flows, right? And many, there's many other ways that flows are being, there's many ways. It's interesting. I found a, a, a Britannica set from 1910 and 1911 in Texas earlier this year. I was like, I was at a friend's home and she had these as decoration. I'm like, wow, bingo. Awesome. We were talking and she lost me for hours because I was like, sorry. And I, I pulled out the F for famine for starters. Mm-hmm. And I read, so 1910, 1911. Keep in mind, this is in that period before Haber Bosch got cranked up. Because remember, Fritz Haber got it, made his first ammonia in 1908, right? And he didn't really get it cranked out until 1915. So we're talking 1910, 1911. Uh, and so I'm reading this with the, with that knowledge, and it's very well written. You know, they wrote so well back then. And it was a couple of pages. I read them a couple of times, actually. You know, it's in that tiny rating where you have to, you know. That was, <laughs> that was before an interesting thing you said. That's before they started really manipulating books like they do today. Cambridge encyclopedias and dictionaries today changed the definition of a woman that it no longer had to do with how you're biological it can be how you feel that occurred today just fyi and so you were looking back in time before the manipulation i love the non-politically correct well they're politically correct but in their own time (laughs) you know what i mean it's like you know and uh but uh uh, but so they're talking about famine. It's interesting because, you know, by the time I read that, I've studied famine probably as much as the authors who were writing that on famine. And they and, and they say some things that I, I know to be true, like most of the famines that happened, or all the famines, to my knowledge, that have happened in the world, eh, could be an exception in 18, in 1816. I mean, uh, well, there was a, the time, you know, the, 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 the volcano in 1815 that caused the year without a summer. Um, I, I don't know. You would have to really audit back then somehow, which is impossible to do, but there was huge famines in 1816 all over the world. Right. Cause it, cause it, the, 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 the dust and whatnot in the atmosphere just created a year without a summer. That's why they call 1816 the year without a summer. But what I'm getting to is, these these authors of the 18 or the 1910-1911 Britannica article on famine or entry on famine said you know there during famines there's always enough food in the world it just makes me wonder if 1816 if there actually was enough i'm sure there was if you could access the whales and stuff you know right. and, the, and the fish and out there are out there somewhere they they were they were saying the big famines are probably over because there's always enough food it's just that it's timing like you have a few months or maybe maybe longer with no food, but we could get it. Now we have faster ships that carry more. We have increasing numbers of trains that go very fast and they're longer and longer trains. We got, you know, we actually have roads and we have canals that are, you know what I mean? We, we have ways to get food to people now that we didn't have even 30 years ago. So we're talking 1910, 1911. So, so the, I think they came to a reasonable conclusion that the big famines are over. They didn't take into account the evil that some men bring, especially authoritarians like communists, right? right? And, you know, in the Holodomor and the, you know, in Ukraine, 32, 33, or Mao's great famines and all that. I mean, you know, the weaponization of famines, it's not just communists. The English have done it too. The, the Victorian famines are famous, right? And I've read several books on those actually. And the, the, the um, actually, let's talk about something real quick on that. It's very important. And people should, I hope, pay attention to this one point. Ireland. 
Why did Ireland have a famine when they're in, when they're on an island surrounded by fish? Yeah, good question, isn't it? And and uh, and that's a good question uh, because they didn't fish. <laughs> they didn't, I mean, there are Irish fishermen, but the fish was there. They just didn't go get it. You know what I mean? And and uh, interestingly, I was talking with my my friend Chuck Holton. Uh, and he's got a missionary for, he's in Ukraine right now. Chuck's great, man. He's a wealth of knowledge. It, 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 Chuck, uh, we were talking about famine. He goes, you know, one of my missionary friends in some country, I've forgotten which, and um, you have to take an airplane to get out to his compound. He goes, the, 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 the people out there always have uh, food protein problems, come to think of it. Now I'm thinking of Thailand, you know, uh, it is a pro- protein problem. And yet they have this big lake nearby and the people won't eat the fish. And and it's like, why won't they eat the fish? And because the, and the, the people thought the fish were poisoned. So the sick. missionary starts eating the fish right in front of them all the time and taught them that, no, I'm eating the fish all the time. And they'd be like, just take a little piece, you know, and now they eat the fish. Right. Right. So. So, I mean, the fish is right there. <laughs> you just won't eat it. You know, it, it made me think that the people who live there, I'm just guessing they're not from there. I'm just guessing that they're just from the things I've studied and learned around the world. I'm guessing that they came from a place where the fish in their lake were poisonous. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or the fish that look like that or something. And somehow in a war, they got pushed out from hot human osmotic pressure or whatever. They came in from a war or whatever. And they're like, those fish are forbidden, you know, um, and I, I don't know what the truth is, but that would that that's the general fact pattern. But yeah, so now we have a shortage of nitrogenous fertilizers, which is systemic, right? This isn't like a minor deal. This is a big deal, but the flash to bang is quite slow. You have two major types of sort of formations of famines that I've noticed in my increasingly voluminous study of famine. I'm reading a 1912 book on Japanese famines now. And one type is the quick, sudden famine, like the hunger venter in 1944-45 in the Netherlands. And they had a cold winter, but the Nazis shut off their food. They were attacking their food supplies and shutting off their ability to transport food. So it's not always a food shortage. It's just the inability of getting food from here to there, right? Right, access. Yeah. Often because an enemy shuts it down. Or let's say the you know, Suez and the... Panama Canal shut down and all kinds of other things happen and trains get interrupted and the electricity's out. Yeah, there's plenty of food out in Kansas, but you ain't getting it, you know, and that's how, you know, it, or it's out swimming around in the sea, right? And so, um, yeah. Actually, do you have any questions? Because I can go on for hours on this. No, I just, I, well, you know, that that's why I wanted to get the mind up because people are thinking more, Michael, this, this do we as Americans have a path out? What what should an American? Uh, I this is coming. You know it's coming. This is a triangulation. You know it's a triangulation. This is a starve down. I I still have a hard time coming to grips with it, but I do believe it's happening. And but for Americans and American centric, what should Americans be thinking about right now when it just comes to food? safety and if europe goes like it's going and we already know germany's getting hit real cold right now they're going to have an issue this winter a serious one how long do you think before that spills over to us where we start having problems 
That's actually a, a, an unanswerable question because there's always black swans and these sorts of things, right? Uh, if we just continue the way we're going, we clearly are going to go into food shortages for various reasons, right? Uh, 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 oh, that, okay. Actually, let me finish what I was saying on the quick, because this goes into the, the two main sort of classes of famines. There's the quick famines, like, um, and those usually are caused by something like a volcano, right? Right. Like the 1815 uh, famine or, or the 1816 well, a year without a summer was due to that 1815 Timbor eruption, right? In, in, by Indonesia, right? And so um, that was a very serious eruption. So it was kind of sudden. Uh, or in Japan, some of the most serious famines are caused by volcanic eruptions. So you, your crops may be great out in the field. All the animals are doing great. Hey, this is a great year. We've had five great years. And then boom, eruption and ash is all over everything. It's just the ash, right? And also, so there's numerous things. One is that the ash just destroy, kills your animals and that sort of thing. And then the people are running away. And so now all of a sudden you got a bunch of villages that didn't get wiped out, or maybe the village got wiped out, but the people survived. And let's say, you know, a huge number of people have migrated due to hop, human osmotic pressure. They've gone to other villages. Uh -huh. So now you've got that stress of, hey, we had enough food, but, you know, 8,000 people just showed up, you know? And, uh, and they're hungry and, and they won't take no for an answer, right? Mm -hmm. uh, period. So now that's how, that's how uh, famines, that's one of the ways that famines lead to wars, right? And, and famine and pandemic war, they always go together. I told you this on one, one time you and I were talking, right. I, I was doing an interview and, and I was saying, you know, pandemic, famine, war, like the triangle of death. Right. And I call it pamphlet war, pandemic, famine, war. And a lady, one of my readers said, you, you talk like this, like you made it up. And I said, I did. She said, no, it's in the Bible. And I was like, wait a minute. You're right. I, I probably got it from the Bible and I forgot about it. The four horsemen. Right. And they knew it back then. If you get a big famine, you will always get pandemic and war. There is no exception to that. There, I'm not talking about a small famine that hits some tiny island out somewhere. Right. Um, I'm talking about like a Ukraine sized famine. Right. right? Uh, it'll you'll always end up with diseases from that, and you'll always end up with wars, right? Or they or they are part of the war. So it's not they could be they could be the derivative of a war. For instance, famine creates more famine, just like fire creates more fire. Pandemic creates more pandemic, and war creates more war. That's why a lot of us were like, "Don't get into this blaming this war in Ukraine." Right. It's only going to get out of control because right. that's what these things do. You monkeys always think you can control these wars, and you never do. They always – you're like a monkey with gasoline and matches. That's what they do, and now it's out of control. I mean it can go any direction at this point, right? And it already is, and this one is leading to more famine. Now, how can war lead to famine? Count the ways. One is farmers are out – one of many. Farmers are out fighting now. They're in the army, and they're getting killed. You know, farming's a skill. You can't just like – Hey, you're a farmer now. You know what I mean? Nope, That's nope. A, like, there's a lot of knowledge in those farmers, right? They're really vital people. And, and now they're off fighting in a war, getting killed. Okay, that's a national asset getting killed, and they're not growing anything. And oftentimes the battlefields are where you would be growing, like Ukraine is some of the most fertile areas, right? And, and also transportation, right? So instead of them becoming net exporters of food, we're pumping a lot of food into Ukraine now. Right. And it requires trans. Now, what's Ukraine going to do as Europe, as their energy? Uh, I mean, they're, they're starting to freeze in Europe already. Right. Mm -hmm. What are they going to do? Well, Europe, that little war on, 
that little fruit of a war on the end of a dry, dead branch in, in Ukraine in Ukraine is, I mean, that branch is going to fall off. I mean, you're not going to be able to keep pumping uh, your blood into Ukraine when 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 Germans are cold and they're fighting, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 you got you know riots in France and stuff. They're going people are going to be like, you're not sending anything. We're going to overthrow your castle, right? That's right. And and so. You know, in, in, in 1848, you had the revolutions. That's why I keep calling this global uh, global 1848. I mean, you know, there, there was the hungry 1840s. They called them the hungry 40s. And then you had about 50, five zero roughly, revolutions, right? There was a ton of revolutions. So many, I don't even, can't name them all. You know, it's like more than four dozen, right? So, so because people were hungry, right? They're tired of this. And now, you know, what else happened at that time? That was when... You know, the, uh, you know, the, the communist manifesto and all these sorts of things came out of that time period. Right. So we got this germ, this infection, this information infection that came from that time. But let's talk about how wars can create famines more. And then we'll talk about how famine creates famine and how famine creates pandemic and how pandemic. Th- th- it's a it's a it's a positive feedback loop. Right. And so war can create famine from various ways. One is like uh, the Nazis cutting off the Dutch. Right. Uh, it, because it was just an intentional starve out. Hey, it's a siege thing, right? Right. Uh, and uh, and um, or just a weakening as well. And 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 your own industrial uh, capacity is being attrited by whatever, right? Uh, and your transportation abilities are being attrited. And then you get Mother Nature weighs in and says, "Oh, and have a cold winter while you're at it." You know what I mean? Or have have a here here have a big have some locusts now, right? Because then there's always these other things that hum in the background that are just going to happen on their own cyclic schedule, no matter what, right. while, while we, while we run off and do war stuff. Right. And so, so there's many ways that you get into these, you get you war then pushes you into food shortages. Right. And so now wars always bring pandemic. Like for instance, in the old days, a lot of typhus, I think we're going to have a lot more typhus again. I've recently read two more books on typhus. We've got typhus under control now. Actually typhus is endemic here to Texas and Southern California, but, but it's, it's not epidemic typhus, right? And it's a, because where does, where does typhus come from? Typhus, cooties, they come from lice and, and, and fleas and that sort of, especially lice, right? Lice, you know, the game cooties literally came from that, right? Cooties, the, the old English would call them cooties. They call lice cooties. So we played cooties. I think probably everybody watching this has played cooties. He's got cooties. She's got cooties. Right. Well, let me tell you, cooties is a lot more cooties than than COVID was. I mean, you, if you if if this if my poncho is filled with cooties, uh, and you come around me like this happened now in Southern California with homeless people, right. people walking through the homeless, they end up getting typhus. Right. Now we've got we've got the uh, the the, the uh, I mean it's a bacteria, and so we've got we've got the medicines to knock typhus in the head now. But we see what's happening with China and our in our in our in our medical supplies. And I mean, most are, of our supplies. Are we going to have it now? Right. How does typhus spread? Every famine has typhus. Every famine has what's called famine fevers. Typhus is one of the principal famine fevers, right? Not typhoid, when you get that too, but typhus. Typhus and typhoid are not the same thing. Although I see it all the time in articles. You'll see like a like some journalist is writing typhus or typhoid fever, which you know comes from typhus. You're like, oh, it's totally it's like that that's a duck and that's an eagle. These are two separate things, right? <laughs> and so and, uh, but but typhus um is is 
spread a lot by lice is one thing that spreads it, right? And uh, and so they, they call it famine fever. There's also relapsing fever is one of the famine fevers, right? And so you always get the same, whenever you get a, a serious famine, it'll be like eh, two, three, four, five months, now starts the, the fam- now starts the fevers, which actually most people in famines don't die from starvation. They die from things like typhus. They die from cholera, which is waterborne, right? And fecal uh, transmission. Right. There's a great book on that called uh, Ghost Map. It's a really good book. And uh, the um, um, famine fevers. Now, what causes the famine fevers? People aren't washing. They get lice. Uh, they're living all packed in together. Uh, and remember, now you've got, let's say, Ireland or some wide swathe of people, let's say 5 million people that are ill-fed. So their their immune systems are bad. They're not washing. Uh, they're eating things they don't normally eat. They're traveling around, right? Moving, looking for food. You find that a lot. And they're, they, they pile up together. That's what we'll do. That's what we'll tend to do. Right? We'll pile up together, right? Uh, and so lice, right? And when people die, those lice, by the way, the lice have to eat within two to three days, right? And so they immediately looking they for They just move out, yep. Yeah, that, that's right. And quickly, right? And so, and, and, and if you just brush up against a homeless guy now, you might literally have cooties, right? They literally are called cooties in the old language, right? And that's, that's why we play that game. And we're, we're learning how to avoid typhus. We don't even realize that's what we're learning, right? And so, um, uh, so th- that's why they call it hospital fever. They call it famine fever. They call it war fever. They call it naval fever or ship fever. So camp fever, hospital fever, it's like a nosocomial lice, I guess. Uh, 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 war fever, famine fever, it's the same thing, typhus. There's a great book on this called, uh, oh, I read it recently. It was about Napoleon, I can't remember the title. <laughs> Something like that, I'll read a whole book and be like, what's the title of that book? You know, I'm so focused on what's inside of it. But it was, it was, I was reading it because I'm studying typhus more now because I'm watching for typhus outbreaks, right? Well, you and, know what's um, interesting? Uh, Los Angeles mayor today, declared a crisis right a homeless crisis because now they have so many and they can't clean it up it's like right there 183 corridor going to the airport in austin where you got two miles of encampment under the highway we've got them packed in more than ever in before cooties man cooties and multi-drug resistant tuberculosis is now getting into cattle right i was talking with the vet veterinarian yesterday i've been looking into this you know, because I, I look at all the biological, as a war correspondent, I'm watching food. I'm watching diseases. I'm watching energy, of course. You know, energy and food are kind of the same thing in a sense. As The more you study both, the more you're like, well, it is. Food is our energy and, and right. oil and gas, right? So, I mean, yeah. Uh, but so, so the ways that you get, you spread and get pandemics and wars are many. One is... Uh, uh, wars cause famine. Famine causes these things, right? Causes diseases. And war itself can lead to, like, for instance, in the uh, Spanish flu, right? I've read several good books on Spanish flu. Uh, You know, Spanish flu, suddenly we got troops going all over the world very quickly, right? So you'll both bring diseases out and you bring diseases back that you didn't have, right? Like venereal diseases are believed to have come from uh, Native Americans and gone back to Spain and what, the late 1400s or early 1500s? I don't recall. It may have been uh, some of those first missions in the late 1400s. But that's when venereal disease made its entree into Europe, right? So, it, you know, so you'll, you'll go and you'll pick things up that you didn't have and, and you'll drop things off, right? Like syphilis, uh, you know, moving around, that sort of thing. And, of course, we brought over t- things to the Indians like measles, right? Right. 
And uh, so it was a, an exchange of, hey, you're naive to this one and we're naive to that one. <clears throat> Welcome to, you're gonna have a population reduction, right? So do you, do you believe like I believe this is all intentional right now because it's a perfect storm of every major indices. It's clearly, yeah. it's clearly, it's clearly intentional. At, at this point, the people that keep calling it uh, conspiracy theory, I actually don't have time for them uh, because it's so obvious at this point. It's so obvious. You know, our job is not to wake up every sheep on the fields. Our job is to wake up the lions, right? right. We wake up because there's some people that you just can't reach, you know, and, uh, and, 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 or it's too much energy. I mean, I can wake up, you know, 10,000 people with X amount of work or focus that on 10 people and I might wake up two of them, right? And it, by the way, you'll find this during famines. You'll find during famines, even when the famine is going on, often they're like, well, it'll be better soon. Or they're writing letters to Stalin in a book called Red Famine, actually. You can see uh, mention of people writing just stacks of letters to Stalin. Like if Stalin only knew he would come fix, Stalin was right. the one doing it. That's right. Likewise with Mao, when you read about, there's a great book called Mao's Great Famine. I've read that book and you can see people writing letters to Mao. You know, Mao, I've, I've seen his mausoleum, by the way, in, in, the, in the Forbidden City. You had to stand in hours to see him, you know, wax mal there you know and you know they worship him like he's some sort of god or something right so people were writing letters to mal if only mal knew you know that we didn't have food mal's doing it he's copying because he 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 followed stalin he got most of his lessons from stalin that was his like you know like his mentor right they had a fractious relationship apparently but but i mean uh but but that was where he he got his ideas right like the KGB and the GRU, their genesis actually is from the Holodomor when Stalin needed better intelligence to find people who are hiding food. Where are they hiding this food? Well, how are they getting, how is these grain shipments moving around on the black market, right? He's trying to starve them out. He's trying to steal their land. Very open about it. That's what's happening in Netherlands right now. As you know, I just spent several months in Netherlands. I was out with members of parliament out with farmers all over the place they're messaging me constantly and they're, they're right now you've seen in the news in the last week that dutch government is looking to take another three thousand farms right yep right on the front edge of famine you mentioned i'm getting to the point that you you made this is clearly intentional they say it the world Econ or as they call it in uh in netherlands they call it wef the world in the world economic forum they say it they don't hide it they're on TED Talks talking about it. You got, you got, uh, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates now talking about we're going to have a really big one in, you know, 2025, you know, a pandemic. I, I can guarantee you we're going to have a big pandemic. Yeah, Even yeah. if they don't manufacture it this time or, 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 the, or the death vaccines. We clearly are because when you get into a global famine, you're going to get a huge pandemics. And for instance, a lot of this is caused by hop. People, human osmotic pressure moving. That's why I've spent so much time in Darien Gap. Like Petraeus and others have asked me, why are you down in Darien Gap? Petraeus, you know, he's, we disagree on some things quite sharply, right? Right. You know, <laughs> uh, to put it mildly. Uh, but, you know, people ask me, why am I in Darien Gap? And I'm like, again, if I am in your state, I am in Texas, right? Uh, that's not a good sign. I mean, why did I, after almost five months overseas, where did I go to? Maricopa County, right? I went to Maricopa County. There's like 3,100 counties in the United States. And I'm like, where would I go if somebody was going to steal an election? Maricopa County. And that's what it looks like happened. You know, I mean, 
if I'm in your, if I'm in Darien Gap for so long, I was out there with the Indians for months this year and last year. I'll be going back again soon. I'm there because that's the invasion corridor for Africa and Asia and South America, right? A lot of the people from the Northern Triangle, it's not really a triangle, but I don't know why they call it the Northern Triangle. El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, uh, uh, and, uh, and Guatemala and Mexico, right? They come up. That's a lot of the people that come over the border, but huge amounts are more like Cubans, Haitians. Haiti has huge food problems. Last right. year, I didn't see almost any Peruvians coming through Darien Gap, right? But this year, I see tons of – my last trip to Darien was maybe – six or seven months ago because i've been in europe and asia and here uh and, and in mexico but uh, i'll go back soon maybe in a few weeks i'm not sure and uh but i started seeing a lot of peruvians this year and i'm like why are these so many Peruvians? i started asking them hey why why are you here from Peru? oh welcome you know welcome from peru to the jungle you know <laughs> i'm not from panama but nice to meet you here and so why are you here they're here because of food problems Every one of them, and the Peruvians I've met in, in Texas that are coming across the Rio Grande. And so one of the things you'll see when you go to a place like Darien Gap, Pulse Place, right? So I'm there, I'm seeing, like I saw food shortages popping up in Haiti before you saw it in the news because the Haitians were telling me, same in Cuba. I started seeing more Cubans and it wasn't just because there was more advertisement, there was, but all the Cubans were like, hey, we're starting to have food problems. We're starting to have, and the Haitians were starting to have food problems, and the Peruvians were starting to have food problems, right? I expect soon we're going to see Brazilians, right? Uh, because Brazil, remember, rewind to that tape with me and Jordan Pearson in the in Netherlands, in Amsterdam, and we we're having dinner with that uh, CEO, Hank Dahl, of one of the, of the biggest uh, chemical companies in Netherlands, or he's retired now, and he's saying that uh, Brazil is not getting their fertilizer anymore. They, they're, they're not going to have it. <clears throat> they just won't have enough food. You can't cut down enough rainforest to quickly, you know, grow that food. Right, and can't. yeah, rewind the tapes back to Thailand, by the way. Thailand exports tons of rice, right? Like thousands of tons of rice and, uh, and, uh, or more. <laughs> and, uh, and that's like exporting nitrogen though. So without this fertilizer, their, their soil is, ni is nitrogen poor. So without these nitrogenous fertilizers, it's not going to regrow. Who, who's going to get Thailand's rice when Thailand doesn't have enough for themselves, right? Likewise with India. India's already cut off most of their food exports, right? right? So this is what happens in all large famines. In a large famine, well, let me be careful with that. And during Mao's famine, they were still exporting food. And they were still doing the same in, in Stalin's famine in Holodomor in 1932-33 in, in, in Ukraine, but they were doing intentional famines. They weren't trying to feed all of their, they were trying to starve a bunch of them out, right? They were replacing, trying to kill enemy and that sort of thing. And, 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 and uh, China was still growing cotton, was still growing cotton in the middle of, of, of uh, famine, right? And exporting cotton, huge amounts of cotton, right? So, I mean, you'll see these things that, you know, look like they don't make sense, but they do make sense when you realize their intention. Like a lot of people keep saying, well, they're so stupid. Look what they're doing. Don't they realize that cutting off these nuclear plants right now will just put us into worse problems? They get it. Yeah. <laughs> they're telling you with their mouths what they're doing. You're not listening. They're saying it. They write it's on their website, the WEF website. You know, they you can see it on the website. They're looking at Europe with wolves running around everywhere. They're releasing wolves, by the way. 
And one of the one of the German, what's her name? Uh, oh gosh, she one of her horses just got killed by wolves, right? And she's like, "Oh no, my horse got." You know, one of the Dutch farmers sent that to me. He's like, "Yeah, you know, he's, he said that bad word for a woman. Yeah, I hope it kills all of her horses because these wolves are killing our cattle in 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 Netherlands. They're killing our sheep in Netherlands, right? They're releasing wolves." And you ask the Dutch farmers, real wolves, you know, like the big bad wolf. Mm-hmm. These things are unbelievable. When you really see serious wolves, he right. said. He said the reason we think the Dutch farmers think that there are numerous Dutch farmers said they're releasing the wolves is because they're trying to do everything they can to run us off the land. Right. He said. I said, why don't you put some snares out for them and crack them in the head, you know? And uh, and and he's like, you know, because uh, he said that these wolves are safer than the queen. You know, yeah, that's what fight. he said. Yeah, I was like, well, the queen is a transhumanist. I've seen videos of her going to the elementary schools teaching kids it's good to put a microchip in her head, in their let's, heads. I mean, yeah, that's the Dutch that, queen. Let's do this. Three points. We'll wrap up here. Three points okay. to, to pass to people in watching the chat that are basically the comments are, holy shit, now I'm depressed. So let's give them oh, three. Get things. impressed. Let's go. We can make it, man. Three, the people who prepare. Go ahead. Sorry. Three things we do. What can we do? How do we make sure we're prepared? And we'll wrap with those. Listen, all of us came from families who have been through a lot of stuff. That's everybody right. watching this, you got everybody here can talk about what their family's been through. And it's been a lot. I don't even have to know who you are. You know what I mean? And uh, you, your family has been through uh, pandemics and famines and all kinds of wars, whoever you are. And we're right. here, right? Now, one of the things that people get through famines, like when, and, and like I said, rewind the tapes to what we were talking about earlier on famines. There's always people who see it coming. Like we clearly see it coming. This one is clear. This is not a, this is not a false alarm. This is going to hit, right? right? This is a fully formed hurricane, right? And right. it's a coming. It's a cat six. It's beyond cat five. This is the biggest on record ever, right? Uh, and there's some people that want to make cat six hurricanes now as a, as a new classification. Anyway, this will be the biggest famine in human history. I don't see any way out of that. We're going to hit the iceberg, right? And so what can you do? In my study of famines, which I'm studying every day, people who see it coming and take action tend to get through them. You actually get through it. You're still going to go through the storm. It's still, you're, you're still going to be like, uh-oh, you know, this is a serious storm. And, and then when it's finally over and you're looking back, you're like, there's a lot of people that aren't with us anymore. That was quite serious. We made it, right. and now we're going to continue on And because that's what we're going to do. So if you watch this far, you're, you're definitely a serious person because you didn't right. click off. You know, you didn't get freaked out by it. You know, <clears throat> so many famines, thousands and thousands of famines. Prepare. There's many now. I can't tell you how to prepare, and why not? People are asking me that all the time because I don't know. Do you live in Alaska or do you live in Key West? You know, if you live in Key West, I'd say get off of Key West. You know, <laughs> um, <clears throat> because the islands won't tend to do as well, right? Like for instance, uh, Hawaii imports about <clears throat> eighty to ninety percent of their food, depending on what you read. Uh-huh. And um, and it's funny. One lady that lives in Hawaii on a private chat I'm on, she said, "Ah, oh, Hawaii's fine. They can grow three seasons." I'm like. <clears throat> have a getaway plan <laughs> because you're just wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, the bottom line is right. <laughs> like, uh, and, um, but so <clears throat> I can't give you specific advice because for instance, if you're like a billionaire, I'm going to give you different advice. There's some very wealthy people have asked me for advice. 
I, it's easy to give them advice. I'm like, you right. got so much money. I mean, I mean, that can spackle over a lot of problems, but a lot of us aren't billionaires, right? And then um, and I would be in the non-billionaire category. So I have to think it through, right? And so, right? So one of the things is, is to stock up in advance. I would, you know, when I first started warning about this in January of 2020, that was one of, so now we're going on, it's three years now, right? Because it's, 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 so, because it when I first be, saw that, yeah, when I first saw that this might be a pandemic, however, this weird thing has turned out, uh, uh, unlike any in history, um, I started warning people to stock up on food. And a lot of people are like, well, how could, how could a pandemic uh, cause a famine? I'm like, because they always do. And I don't know how serious this pandemic is or if it's just going to blow over. I didn't know. We're talking January, February, March of 2020, right? right. But if it's a serious, if it's a serious uh, pandemic, we will definitely 100% get famine because you always do. It's like if there is a fire, will there be smoke? Yep. According to history, <laughs> if there's a fire, there's going to be smoke. And what does fire do? Spread, right? It spreads right. Until, it, until conditions change. It either uses up its fuel or it gets rained on or something, right? You know? and, so, uh, and, so, and so that's what's happening now. So I started warning people, and you look at my old live streams from back then. I and I was telling people to stock up just like three weeks, but actually privately – to people that have known me for years, I was telling them two years, the people that had the money. I guess because I didn't want to, I didn't, if I said two years publicly, everybody would turn me off because it would be outside the Overton window, right? The Overton window is that window of ridiculousness that if you say it, you're going to get clicked off and then they're not going to prepare at all. So right. my thought process on this is, well, you're definitely going to need three weeks. So just get started in the habit. Make sure you've got at least three weeks. I'll, I always have at least three months, period, right? Always. And um, because I've just go to wars a lot and I see what can happen. Right. right. And that's that that's bare minimum. So I immediately went up to two years. Right. And yeah, my, and my, uh, my personal rule of thumb is two years. Yeah, that is that's much smarter. Uh, the reason I keep it lower is because I travel so much. Well, you're in a stationary doesn't make it work. Yeah, my my very strange circumstance is not every. If I was static, I would definitely be always at all times two years. And it's easy to do. It's not that expensive. People are like, oh, it's too much. No, it's not. Really think it through. I mean, how much rice and beans? It's not that expensive, especially if you just buy an extra ten percent every time. You know, right. you'll just like that's that adds up quickly, right? That's and right. so, um, and most famines don't last more than about two years. Although there are some remarkable ones that last five, 10, 15 years, right? I think this one's going to last longer. I think it's going to last significantly longer because it's clearly mostly intentional. However, Mother Nature always is voting, right? Mother Nature just threw us a, 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 a volcano earlier this year, almost a year ago, right? Uh -huh. and, and that one pumped up a huge amount. David Dubon talks about it all the time. And I think he's right. I, I called him up the other day and was talking with him about it. If you know who he is, David Dubon, he talks about these things a lot, right? And he, he watches the volcanoes. And remember where I'm coming from. We just had one in Hawaii fire back up. First time I know I was I, I that that immediately is like what's going on with this is it pumping out a lot of ash or luckily it's doesn't look too bad but no it looks like it's remember, just burning I haven't seen a lot of ash at all so remember what I said was one of the major causes of of uh, famines volcanoes right? right 
Uh, and um, for instance, the 1815 uh, eruption, Tambora, that caused the year without a summer in 1816, very severe. And that caused massive global problems, right? And um, actually, I don't know what caused that 1833 famine in Japan. I've been trying to figure that out. And uh, I talk, that's one of the things I called David about. I'm like, there was no volcanic eruptions that I can find. Maybe it was under sea or something. And he goes, you know, maybe it was that meteor storm in 1833. You know, there's meteor showers. The Leonids happen every year, right? And I love to go out and watch them. Was, couldn't watch them this year. It was foggy, but where I was at. But the Leonids are, they happen every year. I've seen thousands of shooting stars. It's unbelievable if you watch the Leonids or, mm-hmm. or some of the others. And, um, but every once in a while, every 33 years, there's a there's a meteor storm. It's not a meteor shower. A meteor shower is like, hey, there's another one, you know. Another one, you know what I mean? A meteor storm is like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, it's like they're everywhere. That one was estimated to have, in 1833, was estimated to have 50 to 150,000 per hour. Wow. It was bright enough. Look at the old artwork from that time. There were people thought it was the end of the world. It was bright enough to read a book for like nine hours. Right. Wow. So it was like nine hours, you know, 50 to 100,000 meteors per hour. It's just like so bright, so constant. People could, they, people were freaking out, you know, and uh, I think, I think it was Lincoln that got up and he, and he could still, still see the constellations, you know what I mean? And he's like, no, the stars aren't falling. Cause everybody's like, Hey, all the stars are falling. They call that the year the stars fall, fell from the sky. Right. Look at some of the old artwork. So I, I called up uh, David Dubon on that. I'm like, what happened? Why did, why did Japan have this localized famine? Keep in mind, there's so many thousands of famines in the world. And he goes, maybe it was the, the, the uh, meteor storm, but it wasn't that one because that meteor storm came in November. Tsunami. And the famine cleared. No, it wasn't that because, because, uh, uh, because Kinjiro, <clears throat> my screensaver guy, he, he, he noticed that the the leaves were falling off the trees in the early summer like it was fall and the eggplant tasted like it was a fall eggplant and other mother nature signs he didn't did mention we, any did tsunami have, and he, he a, didn't live by the sea he lived back we, away from the sea anyway did we have an axis tilt back then measurable axis tilt i don't know i don't know what it was and i, I, I haven't seen that it was a global famine um i don't know i'll figure it out i'm going to go over to japan the earth the earth's, the earth's wobble could possibly a little bit of a tilt and a wobble could possibly count for something out there that would do that. Anyway, last but not least, last recommendation. Give the people. We'll wrap up. What's your final shot that folks prepare? Not the end of the world, but it's those who prepare that take care of themselves. And that's all it's been about. It's about knowledge. And you can't hide from these things. So last comment. Well, yeah, you know. Last year, they had the ice copolips here, right? The, like the apocalypse ice that shut down most of Texas, right? Texas. Who, and uh, all the Texans are like, we have our own power grid, and they're so proud. And I'm like, yeah, it just got taken out by Mother That's Nature, right. right? That's right. And uh, I'm like, well, so much for the great power grid, right? So I was getting my hair cut. As you can see, it's quite nice. <laughs> my, uh, I hope my head's not shining. Uh, but it, so I was getting my hair cut. And I asked the lady about the ice storm because that's me. I'm constantly gathering intelligence, you know, <laughs> you're going to cut my hair. How did you do in the ice storm? She's like, oh, I had to stay in bed for like almost a week. Like she had she had one flashlight 
and only the um, batteries that were in her flashlight. So her light was gone soon. And, and uh, not that lights do very well when it's cold anyway. And, uh, and batteries. And she said the toilet was full. It was very nasty. Didn't have anything to cook with. Ran out of food. Uh, and she's like, I discovered that melting snow is not, not a good way to, to get water. Didn't have enough water. And I said, did you have a little propane heater? And she's like, no, I didn't have anything. I said, oh, I bet you're ready for the next one. She's like, oh, it's just a once in a lifetime thing. I was like, well, at least get yourself a heater. I found, you know, with people that, that are kind of that far behind, I think the best way to do it is not to give, not to go, well, get at least a week. Just go, just get enough, just get you a heater. You know what I mean? For the price I'm going to pay for this haircut, Here's the heater I want you to get. <laughs> get right. this one. You know what I mean? And just do it. Next time I get a haircut, I'm gonna ask you if you got that heater, right? If you don't, I'm gonna make fun of you, right? So, so, so I mean, and so I mean, so just so that you you at least don't freeze to death. Well, hundreds right. of people died in their homes during that thing, right? right. And I, I wonder how many people got amputations from frostbite that we don't even right. we never heard about, you know? Um, and, and these sorts of things. So there's a lot of things. There's that short level preparation. Everybody should always be ready for, you know, three weeks is like, you know, bare minimum, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and um, three months is fine for me because of who I am. I'm a guy that can jump on a bicycle and ride a thousand miles and be gone. Right. I, I've, I've gone for 28 days one time with zero food just to see if I could do it. I mean, nothing. I drank coffee and I took vitamins and I took, um, and I took some minerals. That's it. I fasted for 20. Me for 10 days with no food, I'm like, that's nothing, dude. I've done that. I've, I've gone for a week with no food so many times. It's unbelievable. For, so for that's me. So for three weeks, for me, I can be on the other side of the world in three weeks. But most people can't do that, right? Most people can't just drop, jump on a canoe and go down the river and find, you know, eat alligators. I can do that. So I, I look at the world in a different way. If I looked at the world the way most of my family in the world looks at it, Get two years, right? And now, first rule of fight club and prep club is there's no prep club, there's no fight club, right? That's right. And you don't tell anybody, right, uh, at all. And, and, um, and, uh, and encourage the people around you, though, to be prepared. Because remember, when, when the whole system is not – if you're living in a neighborhood where nobody's prepared, you're going to get robbed. That's right. Because that's just what happens, period. I mean, they're going to, if you've ever gone for like a week with no food or even three or four days, your olfactory senses get tuned up. You, you become like a bloodhound on food. Like when I, I, I did some of my fasting in Thailand, you know how good their food is and how spicy it is. And there's, you'd smell, you'd be like, you know, you'd be like a, a coyote in the wind, man. You could pick it mm -hmm. up. And so when you're cooking, that's one of the ways, you know, in, in the Holodomor in 32, 33, Anybody that had lights on, they got raided, right? right? If they saw smoke coming out of the chimney, it's like, well, you know, we're going to check and see if they got food, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and, and you can just smell it. So if you're in a place where it's that sort of a place, you need to leave, right? You need to think about getting out. But if you're in a place that's like a ranch and it's way back in the boonies, you might be better off. But I would still have a definite means to early warning. And forewarned is forearmed, and and uh, and have a means of defense. You better believe it, Michael. It's dog always food, cat food, all that. Yep, dog food, cat food. It's always a pleasure, brother, to have you. 
great stuff because we could just keep on going on and on and on and on. And I'll go all night, man, because I finally we get finally got a good connection. It could be a year before we get another good connection. Look how long we tried to make this happen. That's you know? true. But hey, you were doing important stuff on the brother. I appreciate you very much. We'll have you again soon. I hope you're doing something, anything special over the holiday. You take care, brother. Merry Christmas. And y'all, y'all, uh, y'all, y'all be tough and we'll make it through. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good night, brother. There you go, folks. Look, you heard it from somebody who's been there, done that, seen it. An incredible wealth of information. Um, and just let it go because there's so much you can get from it. Don't be terrified, folks. Um, be blessed that and understand that we can get this information out and talk about it. There are resources, and it's just like anything else. The key is to have your eyes open. That's the key, just to have your eyes open. And if your eyes are open and you work on truth and understanding what can come and is coming, you'll be prepared, and you'll do the most important thing. Take care of yourself, your children, your family, your grandchildren. And we'll be able to do this together. Let me remind you who we are. Love you all. Have a good night.
stand up and speak out but not you you've been learning how to tell the system to cut the crap what can i do to help save the america i love and the answer is learn how to fight back and tell the system to cut the crap cut the crap's not just a radio program it's a movement the right kind of movement which breaks free the conservative constipation and reminds you that you are the majority and we're just not going to take it anymore. Make sure you're following Joe Von Hunt and Pulitzer on all social media. See you next week. And between now and then, take a stand and tell them all to cut the crap. Hey there. Think of all those people who mocked you for being a conspiracy theorist. Are you ready to become the smartest patriot in the room? Well, now's your chance to join me on Local. It's exclusive. It's a free trial membership where you can use to determine if my work, my insight, my content, and what I do to educate you to fight this fight for our country is worth it.